Well, it's uh, good to be back with you again, and um, let me invite your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and um, just tell you how excited I am about uh, your calling of Tim. Tim, we're, we're glad you're here and glad you're in South Carolina and going to be in our presbytery. So you're wondering, okay, if we just call an interim pastor, what are you doing here? There is no problem. Uh, other than our presbytery and our book of church order has a few rules that uh, we have to be respectful of. One is that when a pastor comes from another presbytery into a new presbytery, um, he has to be examined by that presbytery. And uh, the presbytery requests that he not speak more than two or three times in a row until that examination has taken place. So it's just a technicality that we're respectful of. It's what the, our good reformed Presbyterian ecclesiology um, demands, and we want to honor that. So anyway, Tim, we're glad you're here. That's why I'm preaching today, because you've preached twice already, right? So uh, we'll get that exam done uh, as soon as, uh, as possible. Uh, so wanted just to make that, that clear. Um, One of the most well-known, probably famous quotes of C.S. Lewis uh, is the quote that if, if you find in yourself a desire that any experience here in this world can't satisfy, then the possible explanation is that you were made for another world. It's in mere Christianity, and that resonates with us, that there are so many who, who are looking and looking and looking and looking for something that satisfies, and they can't find it. And so you wonder, am I made for another world? That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to get across to us. which raises the question that is actually dealt with in this text. What happens, what happens to me when I die? What happens when we die? And if you look with me, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians this is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient Word of God, reading at verse 1. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, 
who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. Our Father, in these moments we pray that you will grab our hearts and our minds with this passage Help us to do some serious introspection, assessment, evaluation of our lives and where we stand before you. Help us to understand by your Holy Spirit, make these words quick. We pray that you would do that for your glory. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken Hughes, who has written a rather good commentary on 2 Corinthians, writes about and introduces this passage by talking about the conquest of Spain. You remember your world history when, when Spain had pretty much conquered from the Mediterranean one side to the other. Um, at the famed... Uh, Pillars of Hercules at Gibraltar, there there was this inscription that ended up on the coins of Spain. And the inscription was, uh, Ne plus ultra. Ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. No other lands to conquer, no other places to see. We're at the edge of the world. No more beyond. Well, in 1492, uh, Columbus discovered the New World. And all at once the coinage of Spain had to be changed, and so they struck out the the ne, and it just said, plu, ultra, there is more beyond. Now, I just got to ask you, about your spiritual geography. Because we know that there are just tons of people who think that when you die, that's it. There's nothing else. There's no heaven. There's no hell. And we live the way we're living now. We die there is ne plus ultra. There's nothing beyond. So I want to frame this particular text in this way. I want us to think about three things. Number one, what is the good? 
Number two, what is the best? And number three, or what is the better? And number three, what is the best? So what is good? What is better? And what is the best? So, what is the good? As we know something about the Apostle Paul, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was lashed, he was shipwrecked. His life was one that we would somewhat describe as as suffering and as languished. If you're languished, you noticed in the reflection that earth has no sorrows, that heaven can't heal. Come ye disconsolate, come ye who are languished. Heaven has no sorrows that, or life has no sorrows that heaven can't heal. If you look at the idea of being languished, weak, feeble, no vigor, suffering hardship, things like that happen to Paul, but we would probably just say that what Paul experienced was on the other side of language, that that he actually flourished. There was a very interesting article in the New York Times a few months ago that's sort of made its way around on uh, on social media. And uh, the title was uh, something like this, There is a name for the blah you are feeling. A name for the blah you are feeling. And the article concluded that the dominant emotion of 2021 is this idea of languishing. The article is actually pretty good in the area of diagnosis. And most of these social psychology articles are very good in the idea of diagnosis, but the cures are not often uh, hit our hearts, our spiritual geography, so to speak. But I do acknowledge on the other side of languishing is the idea of flourishing. And with everything that Paul was going through, whether he was disconsolate, whether he was languishing, earth had no sorrows that heaven could not heal, and he expressed that in this text, he expressed it in chapter 4, he expressed it in Philippians, 1 Corinthians 15, it is just part of his life. And he expresses that there is hope now. And you see this particularly where we pick up in in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There is hope in this languishing, sorrowful world, it is part of the good, 
that in our union with Christ, with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, we can be hopeful. Now long for that hope now, have a confident expectation in that hope now, because there are two places where there will be no hope. There's no hope in hell, and there's no hope in heaven. You just don't need it in heaven. And in hell, you're not going to get it. It's not there. It is over. Paul is saying, be of, of good courage. The Greek word here is good cheer. Because the hope was in a future resurrection. The idea that someone can die with hope and someone can die with joy and know that there is plus ultra, there is more beyond. And there are great promises and the Holy Spirit ignites us to believe that to have confidence in that, because he says in verse 7 that we don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. Holy Spirit being that, that guarantee. And the good is that we are to please God, that in this life, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And note that little phrase, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Die is not relief. Die is not relief. Die is gain. There is plus ultra. And we die with that hope, but nevertheless here... He says, we are to please God. And what is the good? The good is that we are in the preparation stage. We're in process. We're in sanctification. There is to be dominion over our sin. There is to be mortification. We're to be growing in grace. We're in this process of sanctification. It will not be complete here, but it is is good. Your life can be good here. And that is the good. But what is the better? The second point. Well, the better to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The better is heaven. Now, I don't want us to get sidetracked by thinking about, you know, the last day's madness and what all heaven's going to be like and all the speculation. So I want you to think more at this better stage about what it means to be present with the Lord, to be in the presence of God. 
What happens when you die for a believer and for an unbeliever? Well, the moment you die, what happens is your soul and your body are separated. The body is laid in the ground, some bodies are burned up, some bodies are are lost in sea, all kinds of things happen to the body. But when you die, the soul and the body are separated. But where does the soul go? Well, the soul goes to be in the presence of the Lord. So when someone that we love dies, we just prayed for Phyllis, her family. The believer who dies, his soul goes into the presence of the Lord. The unbeliever who dies, you see this in Luke 16, it's a place called Hades, It's a place of torment. And both of these places, presence of the Lord, heaven, Hades, are intermediate states. Theologically, that's a term that we use, speaking of the intermediate state. Now, the intermediate state is that state between a person's death and their immediate entrance, either into the presence of the Lord or into hell, and for the believer, that entrance into the presence of the Lord and the resurrection of the body at the time of Christ's return. And when Jesus comes back, the second coming, all of those disembodied souls are going to be reunited with their bodies and made imperishable, and to look just like Jesus. Now, in the weeks ahead, I'll let Tim explain to you how that all happens. <laughs> but I, I don't know how it happens. Because people always ask, well, what about somebody who's burned up in a car crash, or somebody lost in the depths of the ocean, and all the fish ate them? I mean, what happens to those bodies? How does God do that? How did God make you out of nothing? Create Adam out of the dust of the ground. I mean, but but we have this in the Bible. That we're going to have resurrected bodies. It's pretty amazing. And but let me tell you what this intermediate state is not, because there are like good people who sometimes believe these things. And I don't want to get too teachy here, but the intermediate state, it's not soul sleeping. It's not like when you die, then you just go into some unconsciousness and your soul sleeps until Jesus comes back. No, because you're in the presence of the Lord. And actually in Revelation 4 through 6, people that have gone on are praising God, are worshiping. It's not purgatory. You don't die and then go to purgatory for a period of time for the rest of your bad life to get purified. One of the amazing things about sovereign grace is that 
you realize in Christ you are as perfect as you will ever be. You have no sins to be purified of in heaven or in the soul. So it's not purgatory. And then I would say to you, it's not being a disembodied spirit. You're not, you don't become a ghost. And there are people, legitimate people, who like, think that those that have gone on before can communicate with them and watch over them and they can talk to them and, and uh, their spirits are present. No, you're in the presence, indeed in the presence of the Lord. And so we go to heaven, we go home to rest, death is the last enemy. And it indeed is a place of rest, it's it's the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. This is just a rehearsal for what we will be doing in heaven on every Lord's Day. I remember years ago when I was a pastor in, in Mississippi, and there was an older lady in our church. She was early 90s. She couldn't come to church much anymore. So I would go see her, and I would read the Bible with her and talk to her. And um, I got ready to leave one day, and I said, Well, Mrs. Hemphill, uh, let me pray with you before I leave. And she said, That would be fine, Pastor. Thank you. And so I start to pray, and I'm praying for her and her family, and I say something like this, and Lord, I pray that you'll give Mrs. Hemphill many more years. And right in the middle of prayer, she says, no, stop, stop. (laughs) And she didn't want many more years. She wanted to go be with Jesus. She wanted to go home to rest. And that's sort of the longing and the groaning that Paul talks about in this text. He says, For it is this we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling. Do you groan and long for heaven? My my daughter will get after me for telling this story, but 15 years ago or 16 years ago when she was going to get married. This is right in her engagement period just a few days before the wedding. And so we're having dinner and I'm, I'm messing with her a little bit. And so I say something like this. I said, Meg, what would you think if Jesus came back before your marriage? She just looked at me and she said, Dad, something like quit being a preacher or Dad... I know the answer. I know the answer. I'm supposed to be really happy. But I just want to get married. Well, we all understand that. I mean, we, we honestly know, even today, that yeah, we want, we want a few more years, especially if we think about it's good. We're enjoying being a Christian. We enjoy our church. We enjoy our family. We enjoy our children, our grandchildren. But there's still something about this longing and groaning because we were not made for this world. 
And in the darkest moments is when we really begin to reflect on that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we groan. We long. Richard Baxter, Puritan, who wrote The Saints' Everlasting Rest, he says that his study on heaven benefited him more than anything he had ever studied. And he zeroed in on the fact of rest. That we are resting from several things. He says resting from a sense of God's displeasure, a sense of temptation. We rest from abused, from the abuse of wicked men. We rest from divisions and quarrels and no more fighting and all this tension in our world. We rest from personal suffering. We rest from duty. We rest from inconsistent affections for spiritual things. Well, that would can nail us all. To be able once to rest and say, I'm satisfied where I am spiritually. <laughs> I know God. I know Him completely and fully. Ed Welch writes on heaven and talks about, he, he puts it in stages. He said, when I was, say, from the time I was born till five, what did I think about heaven? He said, I didn't have any thoughts about heaven. I thought about hell. And that probably reveals some way that he, how he was raised. And I thought about hell. And then from 5 to 12, he said heaven to him was just, it was up there, and there are a lot of clouds, and that's about all he thought about. And then he said from 13 to 20, from age 13 to 20, he said those were the dark ages. All I could think about were girls and music. And then he got serious about the Lord from 20 to 35, and then he said it got a little scary because it's a place where there's no sin. And I can't quite figure that one out. But as he grew in Christ, between 35 and 45, he says, well, it's a place where I'm going to meet people, and I can't wait to go talk to some historical figures and other people. Wonder if I'll have to stand in line. Wonder if there will be long lines to talk to certain people. And then I want to see people that I know. Got a little better. But then he said there's judgment. And I'm not sure about that judgment. But then he said by the time he was 45, he got the judgment thing settled. Because he realized that he would be perfect in Christ. His theology kicked in. Well, that's all the better. But now, thirdly, what is the best? What is the best? Let me just say it this way. What is the best? Location, location, location. The new heavens and the new earth. We get this new body when Jesus returns. The next body you will have, and by the way, you know, and I, I read this, and you know your body changes every seven years. You have a total reproduction of cells. Like all the dust in your house is you. <laughs> so, your body changes. Well, we're going to get a new body, and the new body will be the best body. 
Because as Paul says here in verse 1, for we know that this tent, which is our earthly home, when it's destroyed, we have a building from God. So we're going from a tent, same word as tabernacle in John 1, a tent, a tabernacle, same as the tabernacle in the old, temporary. A tent. What happens in a tent? It's not permanent. You're vulnerable. I have a friend that hunts grizzlies in the Rockies, and they sleep in a tent. And one man stays up all night, and they take turns with a big gun across their lap because a tent is no place of shelter from a grizzly. A tent, you are just so vulnerable. Paul was a tent maker, so this metaphor probably comes to his mind. Insecure, vulnerable. But he says we go from this tent to a building, a building that is made by God. The building is the resurrected body. And that resurrected body, just like Jesus, can walk, can talk, or walk. You can go through a door, a wall. Jesus did. You can walk, you can talk, you recognize people. You, eat, you can eat. He ate broiled fish, his resurrected body. Just think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, the new heavens and the new earth. We can eat, we can feast. Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, I get it, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We move from a tabernacle to a temple. We experience the reality of our justification. Our larger catechism, 87, says, What are we to believe concerning the resurrection? We are to believe that at the last day, there shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust that we will be united with our souls forever. We experience the reality of our justification. And we see that in no greater way than in verse 10. When he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now this becomes the scary part of the passage. For we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But it's also the best part of the passage. Because we begin to understand the reality of what it means to be justified by faith through grace. 
that there will be no condemnation. When you stand before God and you're glorified together with Christ, you will not be condemned. Now, you're probably going to have to give some account and you will be assessed. And in some way, even in this glorified body and in the new heavens and the new earth, you will, you will probably sense some regret about your carelessness. That's why he says earlier, be pleasing to God. He says that in the good here. Please God, because there will be things from our hearts, our motives, our behaviors that will not condemn us because we have been declared righteous. And we will stand in the righteousness of Jesus. And we have His record of a passing grade. We would never make it through that judgment apart from Christ. He passed. He took it all on Himself for us. Sinclair Ferguson says, the gospel, the gospel does not make us like Adam in all of his innocence. But the gospel makes us like Jesus in all of his perfection. And that's the beauty of how our justification becomes so real. Because at that judgment we are not condemned. And we are welcomed. So you see, what we look forward to determines how we live. Right now, as you have this hope, and you understand the good, looking forward to the better, and then ultimately to the best, it impacts how you live now. C.S. Lewis continues to say, if you read history, you will find that the Christian who thinks most of the present world are the ones who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who build up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Don't believe that little idea that some people can be so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. The very thoughts of what we think about heaven changes how we live here and what we do here. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth. Aim at earth and you will get neither. We were made for another world. And so the good, we can flourish. We have the help of the Holy Spirit. We have the hope, the guarantee. We die. We enter into the presence of God. What can be better than that? 
unless you're not a believer. And I hope if you're not a believer, I'm so glad you're here and you're thinking about these things or skeptical about these things, think about the good, the better, and the best. Think about nay plus ultra. Think about plus ultra. There is more beyond. Please don't continue to grow through life thinking that when you die, that's all there is. Understand the antithetical aspect of heaven and hell. So you have the good, you have the better, but then we have the promise of the best, the glorified body, the new heavens and the new earth where where Jesus makes all things new. And we enter into that glorious new heavens and new earth. Many of you are old enough to know this 1998 movie. Some of you younger ones, you need to watch it just for fun. You've got mail. And when I said that, people smiled. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. And remember the conclusion in Central Park, they're supposed to meet. He walks up, and she looks at him, And she says, oh, I was hoping it was you. And he reaches up. She has these tears. He reaches up. And he wipes away her tear. And he says, don't cry, shop girl. Well, let me tell you. When you enter into the presence of our Lord, Revelation 21 tells us there will be no more crying. There will be no more tears. That Jesus wipes away our tears. Nothing can compare to that. If you know him, rest in it, rejoice in it, love it. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you right now to come to Christ. To simply bow your head and ask Jesus to forgive you your sins and bring you to himself. He will not refuse you if you call out. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the promise is this new body and the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will take these words, grab our hearts with them, Change us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.